0: Lovely hubbub of community and conversation. We're just going to continue on together. If you're new here, let me add my welcome to you. And if you don't know me, my name is Philip, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as has already been said, we're really glad that you're here. If it's here for the first time, or you're new to church, new to faith, looking into the whole thing, wherever you're at, we're really glad that you're here. And I'm going to teach from the Bible in a moment. Just one thing to say. Uh, There are loads of different ways, aren't there, to respond at the end of a a King's Church service. George has just given us a brilliant one, go and join uh, the youth or Ignite team. We might want to come and respond and receive prayer. We might be sick and want to be prayed for. We might want to use the space to reflect and just think and consider and pray in our own time. We might want to go and grab a cup of tea and just chat outside. We might want to go and thank one of the amazing people that serve to make these Sundays happen. All kinds of ways, aren't there, to respond to a King's Church service. One additional way that we're gonna just start from today is the opportunity to ask questions to have what's called Q&R, or what I'm calling Q&R, question and response after the service. Really informal, just 12, 15, in the, in the cafe, by any table, grab a cup of tea. There's a few of us who have already kind of committed to doing it for a few weeks. And our, our, one of our values here at King's Church is we wanna help people, if they wanna be helped, we wanna help people to begin to explore faith, to begin to explore Christianity and so forth. And we felt that doing Q&R after the service could be a really good way of doing that. So if that's kind of where you're at and you, haven't, you didn't know about it, that's fine. It's a very informal thing just come and join with us afterwards, or if you know someone who is, that is where they're at, and that would help them, then invite them to 1215 in the cafe service, and we'll just chat about whatever has come up in the service, or whatever you're feeling or thinking about with regards to Christianity in general. As has been said, we are in the middle of this series called sketches, 1 Samuel, David, we're going to go back a chapter today. Just a confuse we're going to go back to chapter 25. It's a long story as to why we're going to go back a chapter, but just bear with me, it kind of has to do with me being ill a few weeks back and so forth. But actually, what we're going to see in chapter 25 this morning... If you were here last week in chapter 26, what we see this morning will probably show you at least partly why David was able to um, behave in the extraordinarily merciful, forgiving, reconciling way that he did. Because partly I think the reason he can do it in chapter 6 is because of what he learned in chapter 25. Because he encounters a remarkable young woman called Abigail and what she teaches him I would suggest is part of the reason why he behaved in chapter 26 as we saw last week. Make sense? It's a long chapter, 25, so I'm going to summarize some of it and I'm going to read some of it and I might go at not breakneck speed but relatively quickly so we can get into the the substance of the text and what I believe God is saying to us (laughs) through it. So. David, as many of us will know, or if you might not be know because you're new to the Bible, David's been anointed as king as a teenager. Uh, the present king doesn't like that. Saul is trying to kill him. So David is on the run. He's an outlaw. He's gathered together a bunch of some 600 men, kind of motley crew, and he is kind of surviving in the wilderness, dodging Saul's various bullets, trusting that God will lead him at some point to take the crown that was promised to him as a 17-year-old boy. In chapter 25, we hear that whilst he's hiding in the wilderness, with his 600 men, he comes across a bunch of shepherds, as you would in the ancient Middle East. And he doesn't do what some people would have done in the ancient world in the Middle East, which is seize those shepherds and take their goods and services from them, i.e. their sheep and goats. He actually treats these shepherds very kindly. And he learns that these shepherds belong to a very, very wealthy man called Nabal, who is hugely wealthy. And in chapter 25, we learn that David goes to Nabal or sends messengers to Nabal and says to him, basically, listen, I treated your shepherds really well. Nothing went missing. They're safe. There's a big feast day coming up. You're really wealthy. How about you respond to my kindness with some kindness of your own? Seems reasonable. Nabal whose name means fool, is a thoroughly unpleasant piece of work, and he responds very rudely and just dismisses David's claim out of hand. He says, who's David? Who's this son of Jesse? And says, no, I won't give you anything despite your kindness to me. At which point, something kind of triggers in David's heart, something pretty murky, to be honest with you. The blue touch paper is lit, and David just kind of loses it. He says, right, In that case, he says to his men, strap on your sword, we're going to go into Nabal's camp, we're going to kill Nabal and every single young man in his camp. It's a pretty drastic, dramatic, violent response. Now Nabal is married to this woman called Abigail, who is everything Nabal isn't. She is wise, she's intelligent, she's brave, she's courageous, she's beautiful, and she responds to the conflict by going into it. She's not passive, Neither is she reckless, but she responds and she engages in the conflict. She goes to visit David. She takes her life in her hands to an extent. She sends ahead of her some some of Nabal's young men as kind of a protective force. She also brings with her a whole load of food. She knows the way to most men's heart. She brings a whole load of food with her and she goes to speak to him, which is a huge risk given that David wants to kill her husband. Okay, so we'll pick up the story in verse 23 of chapter 25. It says this, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. They get confused. She refers to David as Lord, small l, because he's a future king. And she refers to God as Lord, capital L. Just so, you're, just so you're clear. But It gets a bit confusing. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. So she speaks honest words about her husband's failings but I your servant did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent now then my lord as the lord lives and as your soul lives because the lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my lord be as Nabal. and now let this present it's all the food that she brought That your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life. The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. It's a beautiful old Jewish Old Testament phrase she uses. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. Oh, and when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. Verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you. You have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in nabal so much as one nail. I'd have killed the lot, he's saying. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail does indeed return home. She's still married to the thoroughly unpleasant Nabal until the feast day approaches and Nabal gets horribly, uh, spectacularly drunk so much so that he has some kind of a heart or stroke and he dies. David being the... Romantic, kind of, optimist, certainly, uh, calls Abigail to then be his wife, along with another woman that he calls to be his wife. Now, at this point, if you antennae as to, hang on a minute, the treatment of women, particularly in the Old Testament, is there polygamy going on here, and Abigail, why is she having to... T- Hold that thought, I will come back to that, so bear with me. Dorothy Thompson, who's an American journalist who uh, lived in the first half of the 20th century, she said this, peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of creative alternatives for responding to conflict. In other words, she said conflict, whilst it presents an obvious threat, and it you know, can derail things can in all kinds of ways, she's saying it also is a massive opportunity. It can bring about incredible resolution and peace, which I think we know, don't we? Most, you know, any healthy marriage or healthy friendship or healthy team at work knows that conflict, if rightly dealt with, is not just a case of uh, eliminating the threat or the pitfall, it can be a huge opportunity, can't it? If, if a couple who are in the middle of a conflict engage with it well, it can bring about real growth and, and transformation and, and peace, and you can advance. A, a team at work who understand that conflict isn't to be ignored or just jumped into spectacularly can actually bring about real fruitfulness, can't they, if they engage in conflict well in the workplace? So we know that it has a threat to it, but it also carries an opportunity to it. And in David, we see at least some of the pitfalls that conflict can carry. And in Abigail, we see the opportunities that conflict presents. So David almost falls into a spectacular pitfall of conflict, doesn't he? He could have just derailed his life and carried out some kind of slaughter, which would have he would have given him blood guilt for the future of his king and so forth. Whereas Abigail approaches conflict with wisdom and bravery and skill and a a certain degree, a huge amount of courage and, and winsomeness and so forth, and she brings about great good. From the way in which she in, uh, engages in conflicts. Peace, reconciliation, she gets a better husband out of here. She brings about, in all seriousness, great good because of the way she engages in conflicts. So, big idea this morning, or big question this morning how do we, how do you avoid the pitfalls of conflicts and seize the opportunities of conflicts? And where do you get the power to do that? So, number one how to avoid the pitfalls of conflict, and where do you get the power to do that? So any of you who've done a marriage preparation course within churches like ours, you might have come across, and maybe it's other um, settings, I don't know, you might have come across the the analogy, the illustration that's given of how couples tend to engage in conflict, and it's, it's they suggest that most couples, one person is more on the rhino end of the spectrum and one more on the hedgehog end of the spectrum. Have you come across that? Some of you have. I think it holds some kind of weight. In that some people, when conflict comes in a, in a marriage in this instance, they're more of a rhino. They're like, right, they go in, we've got to sort this out, and go charging in. <laughs> Other people are a bit more like a hedgehog when conflict comes in the marriage and they curl up. And they need time to reflect and to think. And if you go too near, they will spike you with their spikes. (laughs) He says from the experience. So there's a rhino and there's a hedgehog. And most of us will will fit on that spectrum to some degree. Yeah? I can see lots of couples grinning with a certain degree of, don't go any further, Philip. Now, David is clearly an extreme rhino. Would you agree? Uh, To put it mildly. He sees conflict and he goes charging in. Now, there's no hedgehog in this particular chapter, because Abigail shows us a third, third way, I would say she's neither. Now, the, the rhinos, when it comes to conflict resolution, do have strengths. Why? Because they want to resolve. A rhino wants to resolve conflicts. There's a strength there. But they do have weaknesses, because sometimes it means that any hurt or anger they're feeling, because of the conflict, it means they can go charging in and maybe make it a hundred times worse, as David would have done. And hedgehogs or people on towards the end of the spectrum have strengths, because they want time to reflect, to consider, to think about how to resolve the conflict. But they have weaknesses too, there's a pitfall of being a hedgehog, which is you might actually never uncurl, you might never deal with the conflict at all. You might just stay in a ball. So there are, if you like, strengths and pitfalls of both. And David, I think, unwittingly, wherever you are on the spectrum, and maybe mentally now you're placing yourself on that Rhine to hedgehog spectrum, wherever you are, David shows us how to avoid the pitfalls that come with um, getting conflict wrong. Number one, know your personality. Know your personality. Even if that little illustration is helpful, know where you are on the spectrum. Be self-aware. How are you likely to respond to conflict? In David's uh, instance, his kindness is repaid with ingratitude and rudeness. And he goes steaming in. So know where you are on the spectrum. If you're self-aware, that's one step forward to being able to engage well. Number two, know the personality of your spouse, your friends, your life group, your Sunday team at church, your team at work. Know them. If you're on a team at work and you're a rhino and your team have got five hedgehogs, you need to understand that. If you just go bombing in, let's sort it out now, you're going to encounter five curled up, maybe spiky people. But if you give them time to reflect, to think and encourage them to come back out, then you might be able to work through things, and who knows, come to a really exciting resolution. Number three, dig a bit deeper now. Be honest about the heart behind your actions. So Number one, know your personality. Number two, know the personality type of those that you are doing life with. Number three, be honest about the heart behind your actions. What do I mean by that? Well, I wonder, what was really in David's heart when he was treating Nabal's shepherd so kindly? Maybe he was just being kind for, this, for, for the beauty of being kind, reflecting the image of God to those that he encountered. Maybe. Maybe it was more strategic than that. He was deliberately building a relationship with this very wealthy, influential man in order to make use of it later on. Nothing wrong with that in many ways. He's on the run, he's in the wilderness, he needs influential people on his side. He probably really needs food. He and his men are on the run. They're not just able to just to pop in to the, to the palace and gorge themselves on the best of Israel's food. They're probably hungry. Maybe he's starting to worry. What's going to happen if I don't feed my men? Is he panicking that God's not going to provide for him and his men? In reality, I don't know. I wonder, like most of us, I'm guessing for David, there's probably a mixture of motives. Often there is, that for all of us, when we do these things, there's usually a mixture of Motives. But something goes off in David, doesn't it? Because his response is disproportionate to what he's experienced. He's had, ingratitude, he had kindness, repaid with ingratitude. Fine, it's not very nice, it's horrible. He's probably, but he just explodes with anger. Now, there's nothing wrong with anger per se. I think it's a common misconception that, that Christians or God are, are against anger full stop. That, God, that anger is sinful. It's not. Jesus got angry. But it's what's behind it, isn't it, that's so important. If we never get angry, then we're not fully reflecting the heart of God. When God sees his created image bearers being stained and damaged and hurt, he gets angry about it because he loves them. His anger is consistent with his love. If we never get angry, when we observe for the image bearers of God. As I was saying before, people have been, everyone who has been made and created in their mother's womb by God for a purpose to glorify him. If we never get angry about the, the evil and the damage and the staining that's done to people, we're not fully encountering and reflecting the heart of God. I struck this week by how easy I find it to watch some of the horrors on the news and, and just change channel or go on to the next item. Anger itself is, is not wrong. In fact, it very well may be consistent with love. The question is, what's behind David's anger? It seems like it's because he's had his plans thwarted. He acted kindly, and it's not been repaid as it should be. The question for us is, what's behind our anger? Is it because we love people and we love God so much that we can't bear to see people damaged and broken? Or is it because our plans and our reputation has been hit So understand what's happening behind the reactions. Number four, helpful tip, I think, for us to avoid the pitfalls of conflict. Build people into your life who both know you well and love you well. People who know you really well and don't love you, that's a bit scary. People who claim to love you loads but don't really know you, it's a bit superficial. Build people into your life who know you really well, including your weaknesses, and love you really well. What I didn't tell you, at the beginning of this chapter, Samuel dies, we're told in verse 1. Samuel, who was God's prophet, who led Israel, who appointed Saul, who anointed David, who's been David's kind of spiritual mentor, he passes away from old age at the beginning of chapter 25. I find it interesting that a few verses later, David, without his spiritual mentor, just loses it and almost derails his life. What David needed, wasn't it, was one of those 600 men to come alongside him and say, David, I, I love you. I'm for you, I believe in you, I'm really concerned about your actions here. It's not what God's got for you. You're going to be the king of Israel one day. Don't derail that by, by lashing out and shedding blood. That's what he needed, wasn't it? Now, he's a leader, so it was probably harder for someone to come in alongside him and do that, which is why leaders need to be very strategic about inviting people in who are going to speak honestly and openly. And we had this discussion the other night at our leadership training evening, our empowered evening, for those of us that lead all kinds of things in the life of the church. We were saying, it's great to be in a church where you can go to someone. And I was encouraged by how many people say, yeah, there are people in this church who I feel I can go to and I can be honest and authentic and open. But the real goal is if you've got somebody who'll come to you. Because how many of us when we know we're on the path to getting it wrong, we'll go and seek help in advance. We might do so after we've caused a grenade to explode, then say help. But we need people who will come to us first of all and say, I love you. I've been praying for you. You've told me about some of the struggles that you have, and I wonder how this is working out. That can just be gold, can't it? So, how are we doing at inviting people into our life who love us, who know us, who are praying for us? who may well not only cause us to flourish by speaking words of encouragement and life, but might also keep us on a straight path and stop us derailing things. So, four, th- four things. Know your personality. Know the personality of your spouse and those that you do life with at work and church. Be honest about the heart behind your actions, and fourthly, build people into your life who know you well and love you well. There's some power there, I think. There's some wisdom there that we can go away and implement, but. Is there power there in those things to change hearts? If we respond to conflict and keep falling into the pitfalls of it, it's because there's something in our heart. And we can't just change those things by leaving here feeling inspired or even uh, convicted and then try harder. So where's the power to not fall into the heart not fall into the pitfalls of, of, of conflict? Well, as I said all the way through this series, David is 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 The whole of the Old Testament is fundamentally not simply about the the events that took place. The whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Every single character is basically pointing towards the one who is perfect. Every single character Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Jacob, Abigail they're all saying, I'm not the one. There is one who is to come. We need a perfect priest or a perfect prophet or a perfect king or a perfect friend or a perfect spouse. You need to to read the Old Testament through the lens of what's to come. If we just see these characters as people to either not be like or to try and be like, we're just going to go and try really hard to modify our behavior. And there's no life there. So Ultimately, David is pointing us towards Jesus. In this instance, through what he gets wrong. (laughs) Think about Jesus in comparison to David. He took far more hits to his reputation than David did. Jesus was mocked and misunderstood and falsely accused so much more. Jesus perfectly waited on the will of God. He never seized the throne or the crown or glory before his time. Jesus bestowed lavish kindness on people, not for what he could get out of it, but in order to bless and to heal and to restore. See the parallels? Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane told Peter to put the sword down, not pick it up like David. Jesus' epic kindness and generosity was repaid not with a few curses and ingratitude as David had from Nabal. Jesus' epic kindness and generosity was repaid with torture and death. So here's where the power is. When you see how Jesus Christ responded to conflicts for you, Neither lashing out nor hiding away from it. When you, if you like explore the gospel again and again, it just my experience this week is because it just melts your heart afresh. I look at the way Jesus engaged with conflict because he loved me. He engaged with the most epic conflict of all, the conflict in good and evil, to bring about a resolution and bring me to God. That, that melts my heart afresh. And then I see that Jesus told me that he would send his Holy Spirit to empower me to live like him, including to be able to engage in conflict like him. Not just to avoid the pitfalls, but also to seize hold of the opportunities. Number two, to seize hold of the opportunities of conflict. And again, where do we get the power from? You've probably guessed. So Abigail, she's not a rhino, who just charges in all guns blazing, but neither is she a kind of extreme hedgehog who just curls up and hopes it will all go away. She shows us a third way. She's a remarkable woman. You want to, I would recommend you go and read the whole chapter for yourself. What does she show us about how to take hold of the opportunities of conflict? Well, number one, she is both urgent and prepared. Verse 18 told us uh, Abigail sees the conflict, says verse 18, Abigail made haste. and not mess around. Yet, she's also prepared. She gets a donkey for transport. Don't miss that. Bit of symbolism there. Secondly, she sends young male servants ahead of her for some protection. And thirdly, she brings food for David and his men. So she's urgent, but she's prepared and thoughtful. Secondly, she takes risks and she's wise. She's wise and she takes risks. So she sends protection ahead of her. She brings food. She knows David's unlikely to harm her, but it's not impossible. It's still a big risk. She's going to see the man who wants to kill her husband, who's furious with her and her household. So she takes risks and she's wise at the same time. That's how she engages in conflict. Thirdly, perhaps most profoundly all, she sees David's anger and rage as a symptom and she gets behind it to see what the cause is. I don't know if you noticed that. She treats the causes of his anger, not the anger itself, in two ways. Physically, I think she's discerned that David is panicking because he can't feed his men. So what does she do? She brings loads and loads of food for him and his men. Like I say, she knows the way to most men's hearts. Secondly, she also discerns the spiritual cause, I think, behind his anger, which I think is that David has basically forgotten who he is. He's forgotten who God is. He stopped trusting in God. And so she reminds him. She doesn't say stop being angry. She gets to the heart of why he's angry because he's panicking. In verse 28, she says to him, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. She's saying, God will protect you. God will keep you safe. God will provide for you. Fight God's battles, not your own battles, she says, essentially. Verse 29, she says, if men rise up to pursue and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. It's a beautiful old Jewish phrase. That I think translates slightly more clumsily into English. She said, God will preserve you. He will keep you. He is good. He's faithful to his promises. Verse 30, she says, the Lord will appoint you prince over Israel. You're going to be king. God promised it, God anointed it. Stop disbelieving him. Trust in what he said. Don't ignore the promises of God of your love. He will bring this thing to fruition. Just don't seize it before it's your time and wreck the whole thing. She's very, very perceptive. She sees that behind the anger there's probably panic and a loss of trust in who God is and who he is in God. And so she reminds him of that. Number five, she chooses her words very, very carefully. She's diplomatic, charming, even, you might say. But she chooses her words very carefully. And as a result, she goes into conflict and she calms rather than provokes. And number six, or five, I think, sorry. Number five, she offers to take the blame. Did you see that? Verse 24 She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant. She offers to take the blame of her foolish, unpleasant husband. Now, just a little sidebar here, and I mentioned at the beginning. For some of you, your antennae might be up by now. You might be starting to think, hang on a minute. This is is just symptomatic of the way women are treated in the Old Testament. This is, I, I heard about this. The goal of the Old Testament is, is patriarchal, it's misogynistic. Here's this woman, why is she having to prostrate herself before a violent men, appeasing violent men who can't control themselves, then being married off without much saying it, then having to have a second wife being brought into... That's all happening in this, in this passage. And actually the next two chapters, there's plenty more things that would give fuel to the fire that is strong in our culture, which is that the goal of the Old Testament is at best not as nice as the New Testament one, and at worst, misogynistic, violent, and so forth. A couple of things, we haven't got much time, a couple of thoughts. When it comes to polygamy, it's taking you more than one wife. People say this happens over and over again in the Old Testament, God is condoning polygamy and the oppression of women. Well, firstly, he's not, because there are, there are two clear passages where God outlaws it. They're in Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 17, 17, where God says polygamy is wrong. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, 7, 7, 7, he specifically says the kings don't marry more than one wife. Also, just because there's polygamy throughout the Old Testament in the narrative, that doesn't mean God is approving of it. Just read the effects of people who engage in polygamy in the Old Testament. It is disastrous, absolutely disastrous. David wrecked his family life because of this. He marries multiple women. He has different children from those women who, of course, are full of insecurity and envy. They get into all kinds of, of mess. One of them is Solomon, who becomes king. He takes his father's uh, errors to even greater degree, he marries hundreds of women, has hundreds of mistresses. And his children, in the end, split the whole kingdom. The Bible's message is very clear. Not only is polygamy wrong according to God, it's also disastrous. So, just because it's in the narrative, it's not a case of God in any way approving of it. Second thing I would mention, and I'm just touching the surface of these things, I came across a brilliant, I thought, a brilliant talk, which I would recommend to anybody who's a Christian, who wants to think about these things, or who's not yet a Christian, and wants to think about these things, Uh, it's by a woman called Joe Vitale, and the the title of the talk does not mess around, It it goes like this, racism, sexism, genocide, is this the God of the Bible? racism sexism genocide is this the god of the bible just google that and she's done that talk a number of times in the last one or two, one or two years she's a hugely bright woman phd from oxford spent 10 years studying the old testament and studying the culture and archaeology and uh, civilization around it which you have to do and she will really help you to explore what is a stumbling block for, for many people about what's happening in the old testament i've just touched upon it next week we've got plenty of violence, the week after that we've got witchcraft and the dark arts, there's plenty of stuff for us to engage in, we don't want to duck it, we want to engage with it and see the goodness of God through it. So that talk is called Racism, Sexism, Genocide, Is This the God of the Bible by Joe Vitale, V-I-T-A-L-E. So David has given us some obvious things to do in response to his error, knowing our personality, checking our heart, inviting people around us and so forth. Abigail gives us some brilliant things to do to seize the opportunity of conflict, Uh, in terms of her preparedness, her wisdom, her her, her, um, willingness to take risks, her getting underneath the causes of people's anger and conflict. Choosing wise words and even taking the blame in order to bring about resolution. But again, if all I do this morning is send you out thinking, I must not be like David when conflict comes in the workplace or my marriage. Or I'm inspired by Abigail, so I'm going to be like her. There's some value in that having someone who's tried desperately to implement things, but that way there is not lasting gold and growth in just trying to improve ourselves by being either warned or inspired. These people are not ultimately moral guidelines to help us be more moral. They are pointing to the one who is perfect. David in his weaknesses points to the one who is perfect. Abigail in her strengths points to the one who is completely perfect. Abigail points us to Jesus in a remarkable way. Jesus, too, humbly rode in on a donkey, just as Abigail did, into the heart of conflict in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, like Abigail, entirely innocent, but offers to bear the guilt of everyone. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin. Abigail spoke these words of life to David. Jesus Christ, we're told, spoke the words of eternal life. I love what Simon Peter says in John 6:68. 6, Peter typically bluntly says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like Abigail, Jesus knew the promises and trusted the promises of the Father. Abigail risked her life within certain constraints. Jesus willingly gave his life. Abigail brought the gift of bread, which brought life to David and his men. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You eat from me, you know life forever. Indeed, that bread that was broken, and we're going to share communion in a moment, Abigail brought some physical bread. Jesus was the bread, willing to be broken, in order that we might know the life that is in him. So, when you see that Jesus doesn't ignore conflict, neither does he respond to it with violence and going in all guns blazing. He actually goes into the heart of the cosmic conflict between good and evil, which is both cosmic and personal to each one of our hearts. He goes right into the heart of it for you to forgive, to heal, to resolve, to reconcile, to give you abundant life. And then says, be filled afresh this morning with my spirit so that you too can engage in conflict. Not just that you avoid the pitfalls and don't sin, quote, but that you make the most of the opportunities of it and bring healing and life and flourishing and the advance of my kingdom as a result. The gospel gives us the power to do that. And the Holy Spirit comes into each one of us if we're willing to let him, to genuinely empower and inspire us. that We might be a people who can actually seize the opportunities that conflict brings and bring peace and reconciliation and flourishing. It's not easy. It's not easy. But when you see that Jesus has done it for you, and given his spirit to empower you to do it, that's a different to trying to go to aspire to be like someone. You agree? Yeah? So, Jamie, I wonder whether you could join us as a, as a band. I'm just going to give us a few moments just to respond before we share communion. I don't want to sort of jump into communion before we're ready. I'm aware I might have touched on nerves maybe if you are in the midst of conflict, if you've been hurt by it. We talked last week about forgiveness and reconciliation. As Nick was saying before, even if you're not in the midst of the tough stuff of life, you will be. In fact, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you definitely will be because he promises it will come your way, including conflict. So how we engage with it is going to be massive as followers of Christ. So I'm just going to create, just a, what I'm going to do is just leave some space and uh, Jamie might just, and Ellen and George might just play for us because I want to leave you time to respond and we'll just do that on this instance in the quietness of our, of our hearts. Talk to God and it might be that there's some, some work he wants to do with you and then as a community we'll share communion together which is, of course symbolises where the power lies.